expand your world and realize every challenge that's ever been brought to me has made me more. I've become more so I can serve more, so I can enjoy more. That's why we're here in this life, to bring more good, more great, to bring insight, to bring strength, to bring action. That's why we're here. Welcome to the Tony Robbins Podcast. You're listening to an episode that's part of a special season on contribution called Force for Good. We're exploring the 10 gifts of life, emotion, drive, growth, joy, gratitude, connection, consciousness, grace, presence, and forgiveness. You'll hear Tony and Sage Robbins explain each gift and then stories of true heroes who show us how they show up in real life. We hope you enjoy today's episode on consciousness. As human beings, we're unique in the animal world. We have the gift of expanding consciousness. We have the ability to build caring relationships with others, even with those we don't know. Consciousness means caring and awareness. It means we care about ourselves, others in our lives, others in the world, and even about the world itself. And consciousness can be cultivated as we work to get out of our own minds and into an awareness that all of us are connected. In today's episode, you're going to hear Tony break down the four levels of human consciousness, egocentric, ethnocentric, world-centric, and ultimately, spirit consciousness. And you'll hear from Sage Robbins as she shares how her own consciousness has transformed over time. Welcome back, dear friend, and happy holidays. Today, we're going to talk about an invisible force that controls the quality of everything in your life. And yet, when we say the words, it may sound esoteric. The power of consciousness. What the heck does that mean? Well, first of all, I hate to even use the word very often because so many people throw the word around as a tool for significance. I'm so conscious. You're not conscious. We live in a world where people are constantly evaluating other people's level of consciousness and scoring brownie points by seeing that they know more, act more. That's not consciousness. Let me give you a simple definition that can help you understand the power it has in your life. Consciousness is really how much you care. Consciousness comes from inside, not outside. And when we care at the deepest level, we channel the best part of our soul and our spirit. In the holidays, a lot of people go unconscious. What that means is we just get habitual. Scientists have shown us that about 45% of what we do is habitual. And the great thing about habits, automatic pilot, is you don't have to think. So it gives you a lot of certainty, right? You don't have to think about it. You know what to do. But the bad part about it is it makes you unconscious. It makes you like a robot. It makes you unable to experience the deep joy and the fulfillment and the experience of life that's becoming new every moment. Just to give you a frame, you can think of consciousness in four levels, and they're part of how we evolve. And not all of us evolve completely, and this is not a measurement for anybody else. It's a measurement for ourselves, because the more conscious we are is really just a measure of how much more we care. Egocentric consciousness is the first level. That's when you care about who? The big me, right? And we live in a culture that's about me, me, me so often. And the problem is life's not about me. It's about we. You know, we as human beings can't make it on our own. We think we're all islands. We have our own capacity. We're in control and we're not. We can shape things. We can influence things. We can certainly influence and control our thoughts and our meanings. But when we're focused on ourselves, we usually suffer. And guess what? We all start egocentric. Babies are egocentric. In fact, they can't even perceive that you have a different consciousness than they do until the time they're two, three, or four years old, depending on the development. I can show you a piece of paper and on one side have it be yellow, the other side be blue, and show it to a baby, yellow, blue, yellow, blue, yellow, blue. 
And then whenever I show them, that's they think what I'm seeing as well. They literally don't have the neurology to do it. There's nothing wrong. They're not supposed to be. We're supposed to take care of babies. It is supposed to be all about them. But some people are 40 and they're still egocentric, right? Now, we can all be egocentric in the moment. Don't get me wrong. But focusing on yourself is an empty place and it's not going to make you feel alive. Second level is ethnocentric. Somewhere along from three, four, five years old, you start to have to interact with other human beings who aren't just going to wait on you hand and foot like maybe your mother or father or someone did in the beginning when you were a baby in survival. Suddenly, I have to care about what other people feel, what other people think, but they're your tribe. They're the kids next door. They're other Christians, other Jews, other Muslims, other whatever your tribe may be, whether it be religious or emotional or community or country. Everything is what they believe and everybody else is evil. And the problem with ethnocentric is it creates evil. It creates opposites. It creates something to fight. And so whenever you're there in the ethnocentric place, it's better than just being about yourself because now you care about others. But you usually really care only because they can give you something pleasurable or give you something painful. In other words, there's consequences. That's why we start to become more conscious. That's why we start to care about more than just ourselves. Third level of consciousness really is where you're world-centric. That's at some stage, sometimes in late teens, early 20s, very often people wake up and they go, hey, it's not just about me. And they start caring about people that can't give them pain or pleasure. They care about somebody who lives in Africa who's starving and they can't help them. They can't make their life better. They care because they're part of humanity. And that's a huge development. Now, not everybody goes in a straight order. Some people get a little world-centric and they drop back into egocentric or ethnocentric. And we all do it moment to moment at times. But if you can use this as a ladder to measure where you are, you can correct it quickly. Ultimately, there is spirit consciousness, which is you care about everything, animals, things, sentient beings, you feel it all. I just want you to understand that as you're thinking about the holidays, as you're thinking about your life, the more you care about others, the more alive you're going to feel. Like we'll all do more for others than we'd ever do for ourselves. I'm sure you do more for your children if you have them than you would for yourself or for your loved one. That's part of the beauty of humanity. That's what makes us human. That's what creates what we're proud of. One of the greatest things about human beings is we care about more than ourselves. That's how we've survived. That's how we've grown. My view on consciousness is measure yourself. Look, if you're in business, you know, if you don't measure something, you can't manage it. And our consciousness can go up and down, especially stimulated by technology and the environment and the news. It'd be really useful to just pop back and say, maybe I just need to bring more compassion and love to this. Because if you do it for others, you're going to do it for yourself and your life's going to change. Any of your thoughts on consciousness? When Tony was mentioning about from egocentric to ethnocentric or world-centric or even spirit, part of how we make that bridge or that jump is a recognition that we take full and utter responsibility for our experience of life. That isn't anybody else's job besides our own. If you think of it this way, conscious simply means awareness, awareness that we are indeed life. It's our actual nature. And from the notion that mind is what we've learned or what's been cultivated or what's conditioned in us and consciousness is what we are. It's that existence. It's like, if you ever think like, who's in there watching this? That's consciousness. Consciousness expands by how we live and by having an awareness and cultivating that by a daily practice, whether that be through the path of inquiry, through the path of mindfulness, through the path of prayer, all of these rituals or all these daily practices connects us to our higher self. Meditation, you know, it connects us to our true nature. So condition the notion of mind to be used as a tool and consciousness as a notion to be experienced. I can say in my own life, if I'm judging others or blaming somebody, I miss that fuller, broader picture of life, the fuller perspective. 
And when I bring awareness to the moment and I drop my internal blaming or external blaming on somebody else or judging them, consciousness expands. It invokes more understanding, more compassion, more connectivity. And therefore, we have more intimacy with the moment and more intimacy with those that we love. Therefore, life is more beautiful. We go to our jobs or we go to work and it's like we think we're just doing a job. But when we bring not just the cognitive skill, but we bring our consciousness, we bring our heart to it. Beautiful things happen because we fall in love. We fall in love with who we work with. We fall in love with the experience of service in itself. That's how we expand consciousness. It makes life more beautiful. Life certainly does indeed have its challenges or what most of us would consider problems. But when we expand our awareness beyond the problem itself, we have the gift of seeing a higher truth, the higher truth that we're all here to evolve. And no matter what our life stimulus, what our life experience, it's been painful or otherwise, If we're born and we're human, we're going to know pain at times. You know, it might look different. It might sound different. It might be a different narrative, but we've all experienced pain. And that pain is a catalyst for us to evolve. And part of that evolution is to expand our consciousness to become more of our true nature. By the way, during this holiday season, why not be in a position when you hear people making judgments because they won't talk to someone because they have a different political view or they have a different point of view to realize that that consciousness is just something that's in development and you don't need to participate in that. Ellen's a dear friend of ours and so is George Bush. We have people on both sides and I know recently you may have seen the video where she was sitting beside him at a football game and she got all this negative write-up and I loved, I was so proud of her. She brought a different consciousness to it. She said, you know, I have friends that have totally different points of view. Not everybody has to believe what I believe to love them. That's spirit consciousness. That's world-centric consciousness as opposed to this us versus them that's dividing so many humans today. The holiday should be a time for us to come together. Instead of judging, let's enjoy each other. Let's find the beauty in each other. And let's find the newness in our consciousness that can renew the joy and the happiness and the love and the unity that makes us all great families, great countries, great communities, and it gives us all a great life. This holiday season, let's all make the choice and commit to having the most cherished, precious time with your loved ones. If this was your last holiday season or your last December of life, how would you live differently? We put so much pressure on ourselves of gifts or the present that we're going to buy, and we miss the gift of being able to share our love, being able to share the intimacy of a moment. We put so much pressure going out and doing holiday shopping, and we forget that that's even a gift. To be able to go out and honor one of our beloveds and pull something together meaningful for them, it's not about the biggest, it's not about the most expensive, it's not about the newest. It's about the nuances of bringing ourselves to the table and wanting to make these holidays, never mind each and every moment of our life special. Thank you for joining us today. As you can tell, it's a passionate topic for us both. (laughs) We love you. Have the most amazing holiday. We'll be with you next week. You're listening to the Force for Good season of the Tony Robbins podcast. To learn more about the 10 gifts that we're featuring this holiday season, including emotion, drive, growth, joy, gratitude, connection, consciousness, grace, presence, and forgiveness, please visit www.tonyrobbins.com slash gifts, G-I-F-T-S. And to find Tony Robbins products and events that can help you identify your gifts, go to TonyRobbins.com slash shop, S-H-O-P.
everything is about regeneration. And it's not just about regeneration of the food or regeneration you know, of the trees or whatever it is that they need in that moment. It's literally about regeneration, I think, of the soul. Because to do harm to somebody else or something else ultimately would do harm to you. When we stop and observe and see how different Indigenous communities live as one with everything and everyone around them, then I think if we were to start doing that, we would not see these catastrophes that we are witnessing today, whether it's an environmental catastrophe or a democratic catastrophe, a political catastrophe, a food security catastrophe. I mean, we have really created all of that because we haven't lived connected to this greater consciousness that is all about us and that unites us all. The voice you just heard was that of Nicolette Roche. Nicolette is a business owner in British Columbia who is demonstrating what it means to live a world and spirit conscious life and to run her business according to conscious principles. But what does it mean to lead a more conscious life? As you heard Tony say, it's a word that carries a lot of weight and a concept that can feel intimidating and confusing. But once you strip everything away and return to its core meaning, it simply means caring. A conscious person understands their place in the world in relationship to others and to their environment. A conscious person knows they are just one part of a whole system of interconnectedness. And a conscious person lives more carefully because of that. A conscious person cares. Today's episode features two business owners who embody this sense of caring. They operate their businesses with a specific focus on consciousness. Every business decision carefully made to enhance the greater good with the understanding that profit will then follow. As you hear these stories, consider the ways that you are connected to those around you, to your family, your community, the people you work with, the country you live in, its culture, and how you're connected to your ancestors and your natural environment. Explore and expand your own gift of consciousness. When you think about consciousness, Walmart probably doesn't come to mind. But that's exactly where our first guest story begins. Andy Rubin's career was changed forever when he got the opportunity to start a sustainability program at Walmart, of all places. What he learned in his time there would be the seeds of an entire movement of change toward a more conscious consumer future. Andy is the founder of Yurtle, a service that helps other companies implement re-commerce into their current business models. Andy's entire career has been focused on sustainability, on caring for our planet and for the people who inhabit it. And in doing so, Andy is supporting a collective rise in consciousness. Here's Andy. When I joined Walmart originally, I was running Global Strategy. I got to start sustainability at that company, and it is something that changed my whole career. I really came to appreciate how much work there is to be done in terms of more sustainable ways of operating. Out of sustainability, I became obsessed with products. Because I quickly realized inside Walmart that no matter what the trucks were like or the stores, it was the stuff that we make that really mattered. That's where the footprint was, specifically agriculture. So I went from sustainability to operating one of the largest P&Ls that Walmart had, which is private brands. My thought was, if I can write this massive check, we can change the way that these things are made. And the reality of that was often two steps forward, sometimes three steps backward. An example is we would dematerialize a plastic fork by removing 13% of the resin, but then we'd end up selling 50% more because the price had just come down. And so as an example, where with best of intent, we couldn't actually solve the challenge we were having by simply making 100 billion items a year less bad. 
we had to figure out different models of operating. With this revelation, Andy went on to found his company, Yertle, to create a different type of consumer model. Shortly after I went to start Yertle, in order to create a more circular model of how we get more out of the items that we make, more nights per tent, more ski trips per jacket, how do we see the whole world in the use we get of these beautiful items? And in such, how do we get more experience and more utilization of these with less production? And that's what I'm still focused on today. What we do as Yertle is we're a white label provider that does the back end of this. So as a brand or retailer, you do not have to overnight become an expert in single SKU logistics. We do all the operations, we do all the technology, we do all the program management. So we provide the capabilities for brands and retailers who realize how important this is and how strategic it is to have a program up and running in a few months to serve customers in the way they want to be served. I think anyone who is in the consumer or retail space who spends time in there realizes that the current metrics of retailers is sales. And what you realize is that metric is an obvious metric, right? How many new things you can make and sell. But you realize that there's a disconnect between sales and actually serving customers. And that what a customer is looking for is the use of a product, not necessarily to buy a new one. GameStop is a good example. Apple, where you can bring back a phone and get another one. Automotive, where you can lease a car. There are different models that are out there. And increasingly, as retailers would be forced to grapple with how we don't just measure ourselves by how much we sell, but we measure ourselves by the use of the item for what you're trying to get out of it. In the world that we are living in, we are wearing items fewer times and our closets are getting bigger. And that's ultimately a super expensive model. And so even back when I was running strategy for Walmart, you realize that there would be a shift in the current model we're operating in is really a post-World War II model and it's an S-curve, and we're going to hit the end of that S-curve. And the next curve that's going to pick up is retailers focusing in a more customer-centric way to help us get fewer, better things and more access of these things. And that retailers would ultimately succeed by those models, not just sales alone. As this shift begins to take hold, there's also a shift in the way consumers experience status and craft their individual identities. Post-World War II, the desire and the status symbol on being able to acquire things and afford things, global economies of scale, advertising, inexpensive credit, they have all supported this identity in this way. And where we have ended up is things that used to be so coveted, the access has gotten far greater. And that's a benefit to society, the fact that we can now have the things that people 20, 30 years ago would have just dreamed of having access to. That access has gotten so great that the millennials that shop, the brands that we support, they're no longer building their status on having an accumulation of a bunch of things because things are easier to get than ever. Their status is much more built on the hunt, right? And finding the rare pair of sneakers or the aspirational sweater that was one of one, right? And it's typically been worn before. And they found it, and it's a beautiful item. It's well-made. And that appreciation of the hunt is changing where status is coming from. 
We're not trying to create a desire for a different model. Customers are doing this in droves because it is simply better. It's a better way to experience higher quality, better brands. And we love that. The benefit of that is not only that we can experience these products, but there's more of a flow of those products. So we don't need to amass them in our closets. And the effect of that is that we need fewer things. Traditionally, we make two beautiful items and we think they have the same footprint, but one of them sits in a closet never worn and one is passed on to three different people and worn constantly. Those two items do not have the same footprint. We've never had the tools and the models to get more use out of the things that we've made. And as we do, we all end up affording higher quality things and we need fewer of them. And the brands that produce those well-crafted, very intentional pieces win. And the brands that produce very inexpensive things start to appear more expensive and less desirable. And if you're a business owner, this consumer shift has massive implications for your future success. If you are running or in the leadership of a brand or a multi-brand retailer, if you are not in this business of being able to take back or buy back these items when we're done with them, and resell these items, you're going to lose your customer because just like e-commerce or any other shift, the customer is doing this. It's a $24 billion business right now as an industry going to $51 billion in the next five years. And so if you are not in this, you will lose your customer. Andy has seen this model work time and time again for the consumer, for business, and for the environment. A more conscious model of consumption is better for everyone. What's allowing that to happen are these new models and new businesses like the Real Real and Rent the Runway that provide access through a secondary market to higher end items that allow us to move into these items and have a much lower cost for better quality. A good example, I've got two kids. I've got a 12-year-old and a 15-year-old, and we typically would buy winter jackets for them from Costco or Target, like many parents do. and Once Patagonia launched their used program on Patagonia.com, we bought them both used jackets. At the end of the year, when they were both done with their size, we walked back into a Patagonia store with both jackets. We got a gift card for both jackets. It was worth a good deal of a percentage of what we paid for it, and we bought the next season. And if you look at the cost of that year of use of that jacket, my kids both wear Patagonia right now for half the cost we were paying every year for a Target or Costco jacket. So the net result of that shift is that my kids get to wear better quality jackets. There are fewer jackets made. We pay less economically for the use of those jackets. We've got less stuff accumulating in our house and our closet. The shift is so immediate. I just, I can't imagine ever going back to that old model. It just makes no sense to me why anybody would do that. Why would anyone pay more for less quality? As Andy continues to do this work, he's continually making his resale model even more centered on human connection and the sentimentality that we often feel for the items we own. He's innovating to not only support the circular sharing of goods, but to also support the sharing of stories, the sharing of consciousness and caring. One of the features that we just launched, again, this is with Patagonia. If your kids outgrow a jacket or honestly anything that you've outgrown or you're no longer wearing that says Patagonia, you can mail it back. And we allow this ability when you mail it back 
to type in a few words to share the story of the item. We expected a few percent of people to actually share a story. The percentage of customers who share a story was 10x what we expected. In some of the stories, they'll bring tears to your eyes about the item itself. And what's beautiful about that is that we're figuring out ways to then take those stories that somebody would share about the item and in the right way share it with the next owner of that item. What you end up with is this very human connection about the stories of the things which really become stories about people and connection that becomes much more human. What I believe about that is that we long for that so long as there's still two-day shipping. Nobody wants to get away from the fact that when you want a jacket, you expect it there in two days, it should come to your door. But if there's a way to keep that part of it, but to get this to be a more human experience because the jacket is coming from someone else's 14-year-old, and you can know three sentences about how they've loved this jacket and where they've gone, every time you look at your child in that jacket, it's just a little bit more special. As you pass it off, you feel a bit more connected that the world is a slightly better place. It's hard to overestimate the effect of what this feature looks like with a more human-centric way to move items through. Nicolette Riche is on a mission to help people with chronic diseases use food as medicine and heal their bodies. She looks to her grandmother, who lived in a small village in Malawi, and to the First Nations of her home in Canada for the inspiration and deep conscious knowledge to carry out her vision for a healthier future. Through her nutritional coaching business, her chain of organic cafes, and her community outreach efforts, Nicolette is helping people get back to the diets of their ancestors in order to live stronger, more vibrant lives today. According to Nicolette, living life on a more conscious level by caring for the environment and our bodies with real food not only helps heal disease, but also helps heal some of society's deepest wounds. We'll never be able to undo the damage that we collectively have caused Indigenous Aboriginal communities, First Nations communities around the world. But maybe we can reconcile all the differences and find a collective consciousness to move forward from. But really a lot of the learning that's really going to save our planet, save our communities, I truly believe comes from First Nations communities because they know no matter what, we are all connected, even if you're not an indigenous member, you know, born and raised in that band or that nation or that tribe. And so we can learn so much by stopping to talk, by listening more, by observing what happens within these incredible communities of individuals that have lived off the land for so long. We all are indigenous to some land somewhere, I was born in Africa and I was just there last fall visiting my grandmother who's 91 who lives in a tiny village called Chirudzulu in Malawi and there's no electricity, there's no water, you have to walk for miles to get water. Women carry babies on their back with five gallons of water on their head, everybody grows their own food from scratch and there's not an ounce of plastic in the entire village because there's no refrigerators and there's no packaged food. Literally, if you want to eat, you grow the food and you reap the harvest and cook it. I think that I have a deep connection, especially because my great-great-grandmother was in a slave trade lineup. 
in a small little village in Malawi, everybody was taken to the Eastern seaboard to be shipped off to the Arabs or to America to become a slave. And when my great, great grandmother was eight years old, she walked away from a slave trade lineup and made her way to my grandmother's village. I just have huge regard for anybody who can live off the land, anybody who is connected to nature, connected to our food systems. One of the ways that Nicolette is using the knowledge from these communities to create positive change today is through using food as medicine through her businesses. Listen as she describes the moment that started her journey. About 22 years ago, a friend of mine, her dad was diagnosed with stage four cancer and he ended up switching to what I call a pre-colonial diet. Pretty much all the food is 100% organic. It's all plant-based. It's all whole food. And there's really no ingredients in that therapy or lifestyle that contains anything that would have been made in any of the post-colonial times. So, you know, there's not even any salt. There's no refined sugar. There's no refined oil. Everything is 100% unrefined whole foods. So our cafe is built on those principles. The reason I started the cafes was because my friend's dad was able to heal from stage four cancer. He was given three months to live and he was 72 at the time and he ended up living another 22 years. So he only passed away at 94 years old and he lived cancer-free that entire time. So I started teaching this to other people about 11 years ago and all of these people who started adopting this pre-colonial way of eating, so unrefined plant-based whole foods, they started healing from all different types of chronic illnesses that they would come to see me for diabetes and heart disease and autoimmune disorders and infertility. I can't tell you how many people have had babies as a result of doing the therapy that I teach them. But really the therapy is based on indigenous foods, really. Like it's all the tubers, the carrots and potatoes and turnips and leeks and onions and garlic, like everything that you find in nature. It doesn't have to be tampered with. So our cafe was created because my client's couldn't find a place to eat and access that kind of food. But what it's been able to do, people often look at us and say, oh, you have a set of cafes and really what we are are educational institutions. So every time somebody comes in and somebody asks for salt, it's an opportunity to say, hey, we don't put salt in any of our food, but if you try it, it's delicious. And the reason we don't put salt in food is because, and so everything is a learning opportunity. Every business has an opportunity to stand up for something that they absolutely value more than anything else. We stand up for food security. We stand up for the reconciliation and working with Indigenous communities and teaching the youth about food that heals instead of food that harms. We've proven that we can be profitable and still be sustainable and still be vastly ethical and values and principled. You've heard the old saying, everything in moderation and a little bit of this won't hurt. However, when you're working with someone who has a chronic disease and they need to heal it because they're either facing surgery or getting on medications or they need to get off medications, or in a lot of my clients' cases, it is death is around the corner. When you're working with them, there is no such thing as moderation when it comes to the food. In one sense, there is balance because I know there's a lot of people who will say, oh no, I don't believe in chemo or surgery or radiation or medications or antibiotics. But in every individual's case, what we have to do is balance it out between the amazingness of Western medicine with the incredible amazingness of food as medicine. 
And then by doing that and working together, what we see is that my clients get incredible results really, really quickly. So they could have been suffering from infertility for 15 years and then they actually get pregnant within two months and successfully go ahead to have a baby or they've had diabetes for 20 years where they're taking insulin and within as little as seven days to 30 days, all of a sudden they're not on their medication anymore and within a month their doctors can't detect any diabetes. Same goes for all the different types of diseases that I've worked with. So how did we end up culturally in a place where we've lost so much of this connection to our food? And why are we experiencing such high rates of disease in ways that our ancestors did not? Our food systems changed drastically post-war era when we had this abundance of dairy from the abundance of meat that was being produced for all the soldiers. We also saw unbelievable marketers come forward and then we saw feminism take off really and there was this beautiful stake that was put in the ground to create equality for women but with that came the convenience of processed packaged food and it was really marketed as a convenience so women didn't have to be in the kitchen as much a lot of us still can remember our grandmothers or maybe our great-grandmothers who almost never took off an apron and who probably always had some dirt on the apron from having gone out to the garden and picked a carrot and brushed it off on the apron and then handed it out to the kids or the grandkids. And, you know, that was the way it was where women really spent a good majority of their time gathering food, cooking food, preparing food. And we lost those ways in the 20s, in the 30s, in the 40s. And then, of course, marketers, they were able to use language that convinced us that what we were still eating in these new boxed packages were considered healthy and nutritious when in fact there was no nutrients in there and everything was reduced down to sugars and oils and salts and corn and wheat that make up the majority of food that we eat. People then were born into that era where they never saw their grandmothers or their mothers with a garden. They never saw where food came from. And we just moved drastically away from sustenance living that really humans had known for millions and millions of years. Nicolette goes on to recognize that this is a cycle of misinformation and disinformation that's already set in motion. Kids aren't taught about real nutrition in schools in a way that truly empowers them to lead their healthiest lives. This lack of education around nutrition, combined with the way that economic forces have influenced the food on our plate today, has resulted in what some might call a wellness drought. As a result, people are getting very, very sick. These are the people that Nicolette works with most often. People who have been given a death sentence or a life-altering diagnosis. But what about people who don't have a chronic disease, who haven't hit rock bottom yet? How does Nicolette reach and impact those who may be able to prevent disease before it takes root? I'm not in the business of disease prevention, and that's because most people will not make these kinds of lifestyle changes. So I only work with people who come to me and they have a diagnosed condition and they're ready to make the change. And then they'll implement these lifestyle changes. They love them. They're like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize all of these foods could be so delicious and satisfying. Their sugar cravings eliminate, their salt cravings are eliminated, and they love this new life and this new body and this new vast amounts of energy that they're creating in their body. 
So it's actually by my clients making the changes that we get to influence their extended families because their children see what they're doing, their partner see what they're doing, their neighbor see what they're doing. And then usually what happens for every client that I help, there's usually 10 people that call and say, hey, can you teach me what you taught my mom or my dad or sister or brother? So there's this ripple effect that gets created. With these programs, Nicolette is able to share the wisdom and consciousness of returning to a pre-colonial diet, an indigenous diet, with thousands of people. But you don't have to wait for a disease to strike to get started. Nicolette shares how you can start making healthy shifts right now with a challenge. If you want to see the effect of food on your health, when you go into a grocery store, don't buy anything that has a label on it. We know for a lot of people that's going to be challenging because the only place they're going to end up is the produce section and the bulk section. So they're going to end up with all of these ingredients that they may never have prepared before in their life. And so they're going to go home with all of these ingredients and they're not going to know what to do with it. Simply get yourself one cookbook that inspires you. That's all you need. You don't need 50 cookbooks. You just need one. Highlight the seven pages that you love and just make those recipes every single day until you develop the cooking habits and the lifestyle habits and the shopping habits and the eating habits. In the beginning, it's gonna be hard, but after three weeks of preparing your own food, using these great recipes, what you're gonna find is your taste buds are gonna change. Everything after that will taste so salty if you buy anything that's packaged or processed or refined. And so you're gonna have an aversion to this like really, really salty and really, really sweet food naturally. And so then once your taste buds are hijacked for these beautiful, delicious flavors, All you're going to crave is really clean, healthy, real foods. Your energy levels are going to go through the roof. You're going to have so much energy, you won't know what to do with it. You'll be able to think clearly. You're going to have better ideas. You're going to perform better at work. You're going to perform better in bed. You're going to perform better as a parent. So in the beginning, really just keep it super simple and don't buy anything that has a label and find one cookbook that you love. As Tony Robbins says, Every single moment of your life is defined by one key decision that you make. So make the decision that you're just gonna try and test it and see what it's like to eat real food for a week or for a day or for a meal and make that decision because at the end of the day, someone's always watching you and in a lot of cases, it's children that are watching you purchase food and watching you make food and you have an amazing opportunity to influence the people around you and teach them how to eat real food now so that they're not gonna be plagued with the chronic diseases that are plaguing our society currently. And if you are faced with a chronic disease or your children have a chronic disease, then you can take action today with that one key decision to just try eating differently and you can turn their health around and create an amazing future for them and for yourself. This podcast is directed by Tony Robbins and produced by the Tony Robbins editorial team with audio editing and sound design by Jeremy Enns. Today's first guest was Andy Rubin, founder of Yurtle, followed by Nicolette Riche, founder and CEO of Riche Health and the Green Mustache Juice Company. Today's episode is dedicated to Nicolette's grandmother who passed away at the age of 92, soon after we recorded this episode. She was Nicolette's lifelong role model and the inspiration for her work. 